Hello and welcome to the Gaggle, where we challenge and, if necessary, destroy media narratives. I'm George Samueli. With me today, of course, is co-founder of the Gaggle, Peter Lavelle. And we are once again very fortunate uh, to have with us as our regular guest, um, Scott Ritter, uh, arms inspector, uh, author, uh, commentator. And um, we have a lot to get to since um, we last spoke. Um, yesterday, uh, we had two contrasting speeches. We had uh, President Putin delivering his State of the Nation address uh, to the Parliament, uh, in which you know, he, he went through a familiar litany of um, uh, accusations against the West. But the most interesting uh, event really came at the end of the speech, in which he said that um, the uh, Russia was... Uh, going to stay within the uh, New START treaty, but would no longer participate uh, in it. Um, and uh, any further uh, arms control agreements would have to include uh, NATO countries, um, uh, the UK and uh, France. And then we had a the belligerent uh, call to arms by um, uh, President Biden, first when he visited uh, Kiev on uh, Monday, and then when he once again was in Poland, and again said we're we're gonna we're gonna stick with it uh, through to the end, and then today we have uh, Wang Yi, kind of very senior figure within the Chinese Communist leadership in Moscow, and um, you know the expressing you know the special friendship between uh, Russia and China, and again there's talk of um, Xi Jinping visiting uh, Russia uh, sometime this year. Um, so, and in the meantime, the war uh, continues. So. Scott, you know, the floor is yours. What's what's your take on latest developments? He, he, you've been throwing quite a few bones there. Which one do you want to Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I, again, I just broad brush. Um, you guys are familiar with um, Ray McGovern, mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the CIA guy. And uh, Ray and I have known each other for a long time. And I respect him. Uh, I respect his resume. I respect his, uh, you know, his status as an analyst. And um, but what I what I got most from Ray was what he taught me about um, the approach to uh, studying uh, the Soviet Union back in the day, uh, you know, because back in the day, Sovietology, they, they specialized in looking at photographs of, uh, of, of, of Victory Day and, you know, who's next to who, what kind of hat Little they wear. Yeah, yeah and, and you're like, oh, my God, he's three inches to the left of this guy. It's a coup um, <laughs> kind of thing. And, uh, and, and Ray said he never he never did that. He said that was just stupidity. Uh, he said um, what he learned about the Soviets was just to listen to what they say, because they tend to say what they mean. And um, that's I, I think the Russians have inherited that. I listened to Russian leaders. I listened. I, you know, a lot of people were rolling their eyes at, at, at when, when Putin gives these addresses. Uh, you know, well, that's more. I, I would just advise people to shut up and listen. Listen to what the man's saying, because. Um, historically speaking, you go back and look at Putin's speeches, uh, what he says he does. Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't do it, he says why he couldn't do it and what he's done to fix it and make it happen. The man just doesn't sit there. He's not an American politician who just lies every time he opens his mouth. He takes the role seriously. He speaks seriously. And so I, I tend to listen to what this guy says. And so I'm listening to the speech going, uh, the West better wake up because this guy's laying down some hard truths um, and you don't have to read between too many lines. I mean, arms control is easy. That's right there in your face. But, you know, when they talk about the special military operation, you know, everybody wanted a declaration of war. I said, you got one. You just don't realize. 
I mean, Russia is a nation at war. Russia is a nation that's making the preparations to take care of the casualties of war. Russia is a nation that's dealing responsibly with the consequences of war. Um, so Russia's at war. You just haven't woken up to that yet. Um, then I listen to Biden, and it's just platitude, nonsense, it's stupidity, it's just it's hot air, it's rhetoric, it means nothing. I mean, how can you sit there and have the Secretary General of the United Na- uh, of, of NATO, I'm sorry, he thinks he's Secretary General of the United Nations, but the <laughs> of NATO, um, give his speech where he, you know, we have run out of ammunition. There is no more ammunition. Uh, Ukraine, you will not get enough ammunition. There's nothing we can do to help you with the ammunition. There, you're going to die because you have no ammunition. That's what he said. Literally what he said. And then you have Joe Biden going, we're going to give you what it is. We're in to win. We're, Joe, you don't have any ammunition. I mean, please align your your, your, your speech with everybody else. Get with but, so that's my takeaway, broad brush speaking. Everything Biden said is flight of fantasy. It's political rhetoric. But remember, this is Joe Biden, who in July of um, uh, puppy, so we'll keep him that way. Uh, in July of uh, 2021, um, received a phone call from Ashraf Ghani, the at that time the Afghan president, who was screaming, "I got 30,000 screaming memes coming over the border, boss, and uh, we can't stop them. All that help you promised, it ain't here. And if we don't get the help." They're going to swamp us. We're going to die. We're going to die. And Biden went, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop. I need you and your uh, security guys to get out there on the TV. Tell everybody everything's going to be okay. That it's all under control, even if it's not true. That's a direct quote. Even if it's not true. It's about creating perception. This is Joe Biden. He doesn't deal with the truth. He doesn't deal with reality. His job is to shape perception, which is what he did. The cheap visit to Kiev, what did it accomplish? Nothing. What, is he supposed to look like I'm a brave guy? I went in there, up yours, I don't know if I could do that. Uh, symbolically, up yours, Russia. Um, I apologize to your viewers out there. Okay, this is local, so I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so the, uh, you know, and, and, and all that, when we know that, uh, you know, a phone call was made to Russia saying, hey, the president's coming in, let's deconflict, and the Russians went, we don't care, get him in there, get him out, you know, we, it doesn't bother us at all. Uh, then you can go to Warsaw and you can stumble around on the red carpet all you want. You can give your speech and you can look stupid and foolish. The Russians are dealing with reality right now, a harsh reality, a blunt reality. They don't uh, they don't put perfume on it. They don't wrap it up with a ribbon. They just put it on the plate and say, there it well, is. You know, it's, it's, kind of really interesting. It, it, it's really just kind of iconography here, because what they what we see in the West is they're trying to frame it as the Second World War. Okay, Zelensky is like is Churchill. Okay, uh, Putin is Hitler. Okay, and it it's good for CNN and MSM, even Fox News, because it's a very simple way of presenting it. But they never talk about the the context, the origins of how this came about. They almost no one except for maybe like Douglas McGregor that gets two or three minutes a, a month on Fox. You know that this is the most avoidable war in the history of conflict that we know of. Okay, and so, but instead of doing an analysis here, I mean, Stoltenberg, there's no ammunition. Yeah, and then you have Biden coming out to say again this ridiculous democracy autocracy. I mean, it doesn't have any. It doesn't stick to reality whatsoever. And for, as far as I'm concerned, 
it didn't show any bravery, as you pointed out. The, the Russian, they you gave the Russians a heads up. You know, the old man's showing up for an hour and a half. Okay, well, whatever. Um, uh, we're not going to do anything about it. We don't care. Uh, they don't care. And, and then you know, Biden go, uh, goes back, and it was a fundraiser. It was to keep everybody corralled. I mean, even the Italian prime minister, I couldn't believe it. I mean, and what she did was destroy her coalition, show all the fissures all through Europe. Okay, I mean, talk about you know self-inflicted. That whole trip was self-inflicted, and actually generated the very opposite that he tried to. Because you can have all the words you want. But, you know, we're going to promise you 300 tanks, but, well, maybe 12. Okay, can you, maybe 12 will be all right? Okay, we're not sure if they work, okay? I mean, this is all bluster here. And that's why um, the Russians just don't take any of these people seriously. They, well, why should they? So I, I, I write for a number of outlets, and I'm not here to embarrass any outlet. Um, but I, I, I wrote a piece um, that got rejected for publication because... I, uh, I took the Putin approach, which is to explain things in their historical context. But the problem is for the West, the historical context is totally inconvenient. Nobody wants to talk about Merkel, Hollande, and Poroshenko. Nobody wants to talk about the awful truth that the West has been preparing for this war forever. Nobody wants to talk about how the uh, that, that Russia was the only nation interested in a peaceful outcome, that Russia was not searching for a war, Russia was searching for peace. Nobody wants to talk about it because it's inconvenient to the narrative that's been placed there. Um, but that's what I appreciate about Putin. Now, can can you know historical perfectionists uh, you know take umbrage at this? That yeah, it's a speech. It's not a PhD thesis. So you know if you're going to sit there and say no, Vlad, um, on September third, what would we know? The Sikorsky woke up on the left side of the bed, not the right side of the bed. Oh, okay. Did that fundamentally change anything? No. Okay, so back off. Um, but you know, so Putin has laid out the case, and what's important about this is that the the whole Russian approach is it has cohesive logic. Um, you can disagree with the logic, but it's cohesive. Uh, it links together. It makes sense. It's factually consistent. The Western approach has none of this. This is literally just chaos, anarchy, rhetoric, nothing. There's no cohesion. And as you see, when they try to make it, co they fall apart. The Italian, I, I think the Italians are just a perfect example of that, of, you know, trying to come in and just have, because you have no cohesion, you literally, the, 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 the centrifugal force of, of the illogic of what you're doing just throws you apart. So, let me follow up real quick here for George. I'm sorry, I apologize. It, it seems to me, I, I really like how you're talking about it, it lacks cohesion, and I, I don't want to go into the weeds now, but it seems so eerily familiar. COVID, the same thing, moving the goalposts, changing the goals, uh, changing the narrative, how we think about it. It's it's very interesting how these people operate, okay? Because they, they have no strategic goal. They just kind of, you know, feel their way as they go along and make sure they increase their power, okay? Well, yeah, I, well, that, that's, I, that's, I, that's the thing, that the, the Western powers have failed to articulate right. what their objectives are in Ukraine. What is it that they want to achieve? I mean, it's like, you know, I say, we want to reverse uh, all Russia's moves uh, since, uh, you know, fe February the 24th. We want to destroy Russian power. Uh, we want to take Crimea. 
um, you know, they're not able. I mean, they're pouring in huge amounts of money, but they're not able to articulate what what their objectives are. What what is and the, George and, and then we we have the we have the Estonian prime minister saying that Russians need to be re-educated, re-educated, rewired. It's like throwing everything against the wall and see if anything sticks. Right. You know this this Christmas, my 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 kids said, you know, Daddy, what. What, what do you want to do? What's what's on your bucket list? And, you know, what what could be realistically? And I said, I want to climb Mount Everest. And they all laughed because they knew that I haven't been training, um, that I'm, I'm not capable of functioning in cold weather. Um, I, I, I went to Cusco, um, uh, Peru, and almost passed out at 11,000 feet. So the concept of me operating at 29,000 feet is a joke. And my point in bringing this up isn't just to point out how pathetic I am, but to say that the, the, for the West to sit there and articulate objectives, it's it's one thing to articulate an objective. It's another thing to have that objective be even remotely realistic. And here's one thing I also say about, you know, Biden uh, talking about democracy and autocracy. Um, you know, for, for an autocrat, Putin seems awfully not concerned, but... He, he is very reticent about explaining things to the Russian people, which tells me I mean, the reason why the reason why Putin provides historical context and provides that is because the Russian population demands it. You know, and that's like that's sort of democratic, I would imagine, that if the population says before you head down the path to hell, you got to explain to me why you're taking me down that path. What is the reason? What's the historical reason? Because no leader wastes their time doing something if there's not a need to do it. Now we come to the West with Biden just everywhere, everybody. Every, what's that tell you about the population? We're not demanding anything because we're we're ignorant of everything. We, we don't know anything about Ukraine. We don't know anything about Russia. What we've done is we bought into this media-driven uh, you know, uh, narrative that is more fantasy-driven than reality-driven. And so our politicians have no need to actually inform us about the historical foundation of what we're doing and why it, you know, and, and why what we're trying to achieve is consistent with that. It's just about perception management. Again, back to Biden on the phone to Ghani. Say whatever you need to say to shape perception, even if it's not true. And and that's where at, but eventually words can words can't hold together structure. You need framework. The Russians have framework. Um and the Russians are, are going to prevail. I'm not saying the Russians are perfect. They're not. But they're darn better than what the West is putting out there right now. And um, when it comes but then, to... These- but then, Scott, the $64,000 question is, yeah. how does Russia achieve its goals? Because, um, you know, as, as you know, we've discussed many times here on The Gaggle, as long as the Zelensky gang remains in power in Kiev... Russia is going to have a problem. I mean, that it's going to have this hostile regime there uh, and determined to go on waging this war against Russia. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's a regime change, really, that Russia needs. It's the only thing. But the, you know, again, I'll use the 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 Ray McGovern approach. Just listen to what the Russians say. They've given us the answer. It's right there in black and white. We just refuse to acknowledge it. It's a two-phased process. Phase one, demilitarization. What does that mean? Killing Ukrainian soldiers. The Russians are killing them by the bushelful. It's so tragic. You know, I don't believe everything Prigozhin says, but he hasn't lied yet about what's going on there. 
And when Prigozhin said, we killed 110,000 of them, understand when Wagner kills a Ukrainian, it's because they tagged and bagged them. The body's there. They've pulled the body out. They've evacuated the body. So when he says, yeah, 110,000, we killed. I believe that number because I've been the one saying that they probably killed around 350,000, probably even more by this stage. Ukrainians are dying by the bushel full. Demilitarization is a process that's been ongoing and is going to expand in the near future as the scope and scale of this conflict. A scope and scale, by the way, which General, uh, I think, Kavoli, the commander of the uh, U.S. forces and NATO forces, Lieutenant General, uh, admitted in Sweden, a scope and scale that's beyond the imagination of NATO, beyond the imagination of NATO. He said, we could never imagine this. We're not prepared for it. We can't fight it. Russia's fighting it. Demilitarization is taking place. And again, just running the numbers, running the numbers. This isn't buying into rhetoric. Because first of all, the Russians haven't told us anything. It's not as though Russia's published their plan. You just have to run the numbers, and the numbers don't lie. Ukraine cannot sustain this conflict past the summer. They run out of ammunition midsummer, And when it's an artillery-driven conflict and you run out of ammunition, you will all die. That is a 100% guarantee. And my prognosis for the Ukrainian military is you will all be dead, wounded, or prisoners this time come October. Now we move into the more difficult part of this, denazification, which is a political problem. But I had um, Mr. Azarov, the former prime minister of uh, Ukraine under Yanukovych, who is now uh, involved with the government in exile. It doesn't mean they're going to be the government. He, in fact, acknowledges we're not going to be the government, but at least they're being consulted. And uh, he said that um, Zelensky is a dead man, dead man walking. He either dies or he leaves. But the bottom line is at some point in time, the Russians are going to make it clear that Zelensky is no longer tall. Right now, Zelensky is one of the best weapons the Russians have because the Zelensky government is one of the most corrupt governments. This corruption has actually uh, diverted significant amounts of resources into non-military means. They've gone into the pockets of corrupt Ukrainian politicians, etc. So he's the best weapon. People say, why isn't Russia interdicting everything at the border? Why? Let it go through the Ukrainian filter and it gets all, uh, it becomes, it breaks down itself. Inefficiency on the front line, corruption, et cetera. That's the Zelensky government. If you get rid of Zelensky, you might actually replace him with somebody who's competent. And, um, and then you have more effective. So Zelensky is one of the best things the Russians have going for them right now. Um, but he's, he, he will be removed. Uh, he will either be removed by the Ukrainians or by the Russians, or he'll voluntarily uh, leave. But the bottom line is, about the time that demilitarization reaches its climax, Polinsky will be no longer be a viable political entity for anybody. And either the Ukrainian military is going to take him. Yeah, the again, 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 I guess the second $64,000 question is, um, and I agree with you completely what you said, but is this a, an outcome that is tolerable for NATO that has put all of its eggs into this Ukrainian basket? It's, the, what I find terrifying is that it is this is existential for Russia. They've made it very clear for a very, very long time. And I don't want to go through that entire history again. But the West has made it existential for itself. It's volunteered it, it, to make it existential. I mean, this is a craven choice on the part of the West. It's not a choice on the part of Russia. And this is this will be such a humiliation you know, and in particular, when you have people like Burrell that still believe that they're the garden and everybody else is the jungle. I mean, it goes through every single layer 
of, of Western thinking and the way they think about themselves. It's just unthinkable that the barbarians could win because we're the good guy. We, we really are the good guys. How do you get around that, Scott? Um, you know, <laughs> what is NATO going to do? I, I'm agreeing. I'm asking you a political question. No, oh, no, but I'm saying is, is, I, is, is I, you on this podcast, you talked about um, a military math and I've stolen it from you ever since. So yeah. I know the military math. Right. But but just enough, what's NATO going to do? Well, I mean, it, you know, even if it doesn't put in infantry of its own, it does have all kinds of uh, missiles. It could issue ultimatums to Russia uh, and threaten uh, with uh, missile attacks. It doesn't and, have and, and that Russia of... has to then decide whether you know because Russia has been you know very wary of getting involved in a in a direct war with NATO. I mean, very very cautious. So then it, it really has to decide whether it is prepared to escalate into a direct uh, war with NATO, which means the United but, States. But 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 NATO understands they don't have all kinds of missiles. Where are their missiles? Well, the Americans have them. How many? Um, well, I mean, the, the Americans have quite a lot, no? No, we don't. No, we don't. And I'll tell you why we don't. First of all, America has to be prepared for a war with Taiwan. Do you think we're actually going to take all our missiles out of the Pacific, bring them to Europe? Nope. Pacific Theater Command ain't going to let that happen. They're saying these are our missiles because we're looking at North Korea, which, by the way, just fired a uh, ICBM missile up there and is threatening total nuclear war. So if you actually think that the Pacific Theater isn't just saying, hell no, you don't get any of our missiles, but we went all of your missiles because this is the most important fight we got coming. Plus, in 2025, according to all the American generals, we're going to be going to war with China. We need even more missiles. So all that production line that you guys haven't caught up to speed yet, because you're stupid, Biden. If you're going to be talking big, at least have the the, the industrial infrastructure to back it up. You're not producing missiles. We need them all. Europe, you ain't getting any missile in this losing fight because you're not going to win. So America doesn't have any missiles to spare. None. Europe doesn't make missiles anymore. Europe is in the position right now, and I'll just tell you straight up, they can't fight a war for more than two weeks. At the end of two weeks, Europe runs out of everything because they prepared for nothing. You know who's been preparing for this fight? Russia. Russia isn't going to bluff. Is Russia looking for a fight? No. Does Russia want to fight? No. But don't threaten Russia. That is literally the dumbest thing you could do because Vladimir Putin may be the good cop, but behind that door growling, you hear him snarling every once in a while as Dmitry Medvedev. And all he has to do is open up the door and maybe guy out, man. He's crazy. And it's not just Medvedev, I'm using him figuratively speaking. There are Russians right now that are ready to play ball, play a game that the West thinks it wants to play. This reminds me of me again trying to climb Mount Everest. I'm talking big, but I'm not doing anything. I'm well, not that, on the that, that actually, but that that goes into what all three of us agree is that you know Biden's heroic, courageous visit to Kiev is just like water off the back of a duck. I mean, you're not a missile, Biden. Okay, we're not afraid of you. Okay, you're just an old windbag. Okay, so you know, it, it it just seems to me what what one of the things I'm kind of looking for, and we see some of the cracks. Okay, uh, not always going in the right direction, but there is this sense of. We're out of ammunition. We're out of missiles. Um, we have a lot of austerity that we it, 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 uh, contend with, particularly in Europe. Um, the blowing up of the North Stream pipeline. I mean, what else do they want us to do? Okay, we've emptied our pockets. We've emptied our stores. Um, this is a crisis for Europe and the uh, as a, opposed to the United States because this hegemonic um, um, grip 
that the U.S. has over Europe, I contend will have negative uh, negative returns and rel relatively soon. Okay, because <clears throat> this whole this whole pitch, you know, try to get as much land back as possible for a negotiation. <laughs> Like that, I just, I, I find that breathtaking, you know, and, and we're going to give you 500 million more dollars to get a few more farms and a couple villages. Okay. I, it, that, that's what makes this so peculiar is that you, there, these two different forces are pushing in, against each other. There's almost kind of an admission. We're not going to get much more out of this, but let's pour more, a lot more into it. But, but they're not going to get anything. But, no, I think it. that's right. But there's also the possibility that, okay, you get an armistice, then you wait another 10 years. And well, then you start I, I don't think Russia will let that happen. But why would why would Russia why see time as weak as NATO is? I think there's a, a a recognition that if the industrial potential of the West was ever fully mobilized, fully mobilized across the board, um, especially with the United States going to a war footing, um, Russia would be in trouble. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody in Russia is saying we can outproduce America. There's no one saying that. What Russia is saying is we have outproduced America. We have outproduced NATO. And at this present time, all the advantages accrued to us. Therefore, strategically speaking, Russia needs to win now, yep. not later. Russia can't. If this war goes on another year, Russia loses, in my opinion. If this war goes on another year, it means that the West is starting to kick into gear and Ukraine has become sustainable. Right now, the Ukrainian model is not sustainable. That's why I'm so confident of a Russian victory. There's no way I run the numbers and have Ukraine lasting. But if you change things, and the world is changeable, it doesn't stay static. If you change things and suddenly Ukraine becomes a sustainable problem, that's very bad for Russia. Very bad for Russia, which is why I don't think Russia, again, I don't know, but I have to think the Russians are smarter than I am on things dealing with Russia. So if I'm, you know, dumb old Scott Ritter, you know, simple Marine sits there and goes, you got to win now guys, or else the number of games goes to your disadvantage down the road. I think the Russians are going, yeah, we see that too. So we're probably going to win now. And I think Russia is going to have a lot of urgency in this victory. Um, you know, the, the West right now uh, isn't, they're not even politically capable of mobilizing. Again, uh, Putin's words are attached to a Russian reality. Everything Putin said attaches to a Russian reality. There was no fiction in Putin's speech. Everything Biden says is attached to fantasy. There is no reality in Biden's speech. And as long as that's the case, um, I, I, I think Russia's got, got an advance. The moment Western rhetoric attaches to reality, for instance, we're going to provide Ukraine with 700 tanks with fully trained crews that are sustainable logistically with ammunition. That's a problem for Russia because that's real. But right now we're going to provide Ukraine with 700 tanks, but Oh yeah, 693 of them are in a garage and the, and the mice have eaten the electronic, uh, you know, the, the wiring and they won't start for another year and a half. That's fantasy. But do we know that the factory, do we know that the factories in the United States are not producing tanks now? Do we, do we know that they're not producing tanks by the, uh, by the no, dozen? They, no, they are. Because in America, we still function as a democracy and Congress has to allocate money. And that money is part of an open budget process um, and it requires hearings. And then, uh, you know, there's just a whole bunch of stuff that has to happen. We don't have secret tank factories. 
Um, you know, Detroit, Michigan is is a is a depressed economy for a reason, because there isn't a secret tank factory in Detroit, Michigan, employing thousands of workers, paying them great money, producing tanks in secret. We're not producing any tanks right now. Um, we have to put the order in. This is why to give the Ukrainians 31 tanks, it's going to take time because we have to put the order in to the only and, tank. And also to back up Scott here, these orders are already uh, allocated for countries already around the world. People are in a queue here. I suppose those contracts can be violated and put Ukraine at the front of the line. But they, they build them not just to build them, they build them on demand on how many they can sell. I mean, it's a business. Let's remember that. OK, it's a business. OK, now we do have some tanks, for instance, the Marine Corps just got rid of uh, four tank battalions, uh, you know, about 200, 300 M1 tanks um, that you know, we don't have anymore. And so those tanks have gone somewhere. Um, they, they're sitting there. They can be refurbished, but they got the good armor. So in order, you know, we'd have to redo them. But again, to redo it, to strip armor off, you have to go to a facility that's capable of doing it. And we only got one because it's a peacetime complement. Um, we've been producing every – I love it when people talk about the American Air Force. The American Air Force is the great game changer. Really? Um, no, not really. See, the American Air Force has been flying the wings off its airplanes for years. Um, and we – the one thing we haven't been doing in the American Air Force is air-to-air -air combat. Mm -hmm. No, not a lot of air-to-air -air combat going on. And the thing about it is budgets are driven by present-day necessity. And we weren't looking at the potential of large-scale air combat for the last 20 years. We've been flying strike missions against uh, wedding parties and, uh, and, and insurgents. Um, now we're talking about large-scale ground combat in Europe supported by massive air combat. I'm here to tell you right now, we don't have more than a week and a half worth of air-to-air -air missiles in Europe. That means we can go to war in Europe for a week and a half. The entire American approach to war has been the sprint. We come in and we overwhelm you, we sprint you, and we and the Russians are in the business of the long fight. We're training for a three-round heavyweight match, and Russia's training for the 15-round heavyweight match. And on the fourth round, we're out of everything, guys. Our knees are weak. Our, our hands don't work. We're down. The Russians are saying... You know, Ivan Drago time, bam, knock you out. So we just don't have the ability to fight the long fight right now. And, our, and it's because our economy has not been geared. I know that doesn't make any sense when you have a $900 billion military, but we waste <laughs> so much money. Uh, and, and a lot of our money goes into, you know, sustaining a military industrial complex, but it's not going into actual war fighting. And the war that we've been fighting for the last 20 years has been a low intensity counterinsurgency warfare, yeah. not preparing well, for this. They have a budget to, to justify the next budget. Okay. It, it, it always go bigger. Uh, Scott, I want to return to something that you said to George and I earlier. Um, do you, are, are you still clinging to your Odessa strategy? Stratagem? Well, again, let's, <laughs> That's the analyst reevaluation. I am, but but what I have to do is I have to be realistic because a lot has happened since then. Because when I first articulate, first of all, we didn't have Putin's uh, address. Um, you know, we, we 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 live in a new we live in a different world. Things advance. I I hinged that argument off of a comment Putin made to a reporter in the summer. Mm. Remember, I talked about the Hungarian reporter. So I think we have to acknowledge that between that time and now. Things have changed. And I'll give you an example of, of, of how things have changed. When Putin made that comment, we now know that Putin was still concerned about the, a, a collapsing Russian economy. Um, it, it wasn't until recently that Putin was able to say with confidence that the Russian economy wouldn't contract 20 to 25 percent. 
who now can say that the Russian economy confidently retracted 2% and is going to grow and expand in the coming future. So he feels a lot better today than he did in that same. So sometimes when you talk about the Odessa pause, the Odessa option, those pauses and their options are a product of the reality, the confidence that you have. Um, so there's that too. The situation in Moldova has changed dramatically since then. Uh, there's a greater threat to transistoria. So a uh, Odessa pause may not be to the benefit of Russia as it was. Odessa pause may actually serve to mobilize, rapidly mobilize a uh, transistoria option for the other side. So I'm, I'm, I, I still believe that Russia could do this, um, but there's more and more there, there's there's more and more things that are coming into play that say that Russia may not feel the need to do this anymore. First of all, the absolute impatience with Ukraine and the West. Um, the, the 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 idea of the Odessa pause um, was you know it, it it's hinged on the fact that you have rational thinkers in the West that could take advantage of a pause. That is the only reason to give a pause is to give the other side an opportunity to do something. With the Zelensky out of the government out of the picture, meaning they will never do the right thing, you don't pause for the Zelensky. You pause for the West. But the West appears to be hell-bent on doing something stupid in Moldova. So to pause for the West to give them a chance to do what? Activate that plan? No. So logically, again, I, I think it, it makes sense for Russia, but Putin's in a stronger position right now. He no longer has to tell people, I gave peace every chance. To, you know, The Odessa pause was about giving peace a chance. I don't think he has to give peace a chance anymore. I think Putin's in the business of, um, we're going to beat you. We're going to beat you. And if uh, if they want Odessa, and again, the only ones who can make the decision about whether they want Odessa isn't Scott Ritter sitting in Del Mar, New York, hypothesizing. It's a decision that has to be made by the Russian government. And they have not articulated straight up that that's the direction they want to go. I think Kharkov's history. I think you're going to see Kharkov belong to Russia in the next week or so. I think there's offensive operations right now that are, that are raking the back of the uh, Ukrainians in, in Kharkov. I think that's essential for securing Lugansk. I think um, there's other territories that are essential for securing Donetsk and Zaporizhia. Um, but Odessa is only essential for Transnistria. And uh, I have yet to hear the Russians articulate as much concern for Transnistria that I have. Uh, that doesn't mean that they don't. I just can't sit here and say, remember Ray McGovern, listen to what your opponent says. Um, I don't, I'm not hearing the Russians make that noise. I hear Russian bloggers make that noise, but I don't, you know, I don't care about them. I care about but, the Russian but Scott, government. I mean, the way you envisage Russian victory is the removal of Zelensky. I mean, the, the end yeah. game is Zelensky gone. So it's not even so much, we've got to take Odessa, we've got to take the Black Sea coast. We, Zelensky has to go. Um, yep. Then who, who, who takes over? Is there, is there some well, alternative to... government in, in, in Russia's minds? Uh, according to Zarov, there will be two to three years of military rule, uh, that there will be a um, martial law with a Russian-imposed government that's going to engage in massive denazification. Uh, and they're serious about denazification. They will literally remove every piece of Nazi ideology from, from Ukraine. They, if you are a Bandera supporter, you will probably be arrested. You will probably be sent to a camp. Uh, if you've committed a crime, you will probably be sent uh, away for you know, 15 to 25 years. Um, this is what he said. I'm not making it up. It, I did an interview with the guy and he straight up said two to three years of massive denazification, after which whatever's left of Ukraine will hold elections and the Ukrainian people will decide who, who rules them. Russia won't have anything to do with that. Now, yeah, but, say, but with the proviso, with the proviso 
that Ukraine remains permanently demilitarized. Oh, permanently demilitarized. Never will never join NATO. Um, no, I mean, any idea that Ukraine is going to be this independent state that gets to, you know, we're a sovereign state, we get to decide what, no, you're not, you're a defeated nation that for about the next 50 years is going to do what Russia tells you to do until you win the trust and confidence of Russia and until Europe is able to deal with an, an independent Ukraine. I mean, Europe is, I, I know we, we blame Ukraine for this, but Europe is responsible for this. Europe gave Ukraine <laughs> false hope, false promise, all of this course. stuff. And so it's not just about re- retraining Europe. Russia has to retrain Europe. I mean, re- retrain Ukraine. Russia has to retrain Europe. Europe has to show itself responsible enough for an independent Ukraine to exist. Because until that time, Russia can't, Russia's not going to go through all of this just to leave the cancer there. Not the going to do it again. Yeah. It's not going to do it again. This isn't so a problem that's going to, Russia's going to say, we're going to do it in five years. We're going to replay this. The, this the, is over now. Yeah. One of the problems with a lot of people that think that they're smart, I'm thinking responsible statecraft. I think some of the libertarians over at antiwar.com, a couple of people over at American Conservative. Um, what I think so many of these people that I used to think were smart, and I don't think they are anymore, is that they forget the fundamental premise and the the um, the predicate for all of this, and I'm echoing what you've said to us already, is that Russia will, it, it, it tried to engage the, the West repeatedly about uh, security concerns that it had. The West ignored it. They blew it off. They made light of it. We have the special military operation. We're here right now. And the, the outcome is going to be a reflection of Russia's security demands. It's not about Zelensky or this guy or that guy. Is it we got what we wanted? Okay, that's what it's all about and how that uh, that unfolds as we go uh, forward. You know, there's a lot of different circumstances and personalities. But at the end of the day, Russia is going to have its security guarantees met. Full stop. And I think that's that's the way people, uh, rational people think about geopolitics have to do that. Not all of this, you know, woke neoliberalism and all. It's just such hot air. And if you and I agree with you, Scott, I mean, um, I sat next to Vladimir Putin for an hour and a half. And not only do people listen to him, I'll tell you something, Scott, he listens to other people. Yeah, well, that's different for a leader, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But what I, you know, here's, here's my take on Russian security. It's interesting because I think we're at a, um, one of the, you know, we're always at a culminating point in history, but I think that we really are at this point in time because what we're seeing is the final transition of Russia, the post-Cold War Russia, from adolescence to adulthood. Um, you know, Russia, I, I think we in the West have forgotten what the 1990s did to Russia. I saw how bad it was for Russia and how fundamentally weak Russia was. Even with a strong leader like Vladimir Putin, he had to take baby steps. He couldn't take big adult steps. He's been crawling, then walking, baby stepping towards um, a a viably independent Russia. But you can't get, you know, to the end without this 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 difficult transition. You have to rebuild Russia. You have to redefine Russia away from an oligarch-driven, you know, economy. Um, you 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 have to re you know retrain the West to deal with Russia and the West refused to exist. Let's look at arms control for a second, because start was a very important part of his, uh, of his um, presentation. You know, when we, when we started with arms control, fundamental 
you know, the disarmament aspects of it was the INF Treaty. Um, you know, the foundation of the INF Treaty, though, was the ABM Treaty, Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which created mutually assured destruction, the notion of, you know, reciprocity to the extreme, that if we're going, if, if I'm going to die, you're going to die. There's nothing more reciprocal than that. And then you work down your way through a, a treaty process of verification and compliance that is pure reci- reciprocal. And both sides have, you know, common shared vision of where they want to go. That works when both sides, A, respect each other, and B, fear each other. Because when you're dealing with superpower politics, respect only comes from fear. Nobody respects people they like. They only respect people they fear. Um, and so we feared the Soviet Union. We respected the Soviet Union. We've had, now, ideally, when that respect, once you eliminate um, you know, major issues of concern, can be can be driven by commonality of purpose, which de- which starts to reduce the fear factor. But at the end of the day, you always have to fear that if I don't do this, because what is arms control? It's giving up your own fundamental national security interests and exchanging it for stability, predictability. That's what you're looking for. Um, but then the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia came in, and we no longer feared Russia. We didn't even respect Russia. So arms control to the extent that it existed, existed for us to impose our will on Russia. And it was very much a one-sided affair. This is why START II never got ratified. I mean, it got ratified, but was never brought into force. START III never got off the ground. START was a joke. Uh, New START came in only because of two things. One, uh, there was no more arms. And two, Russia was starting to grow up. Russia was starting to, trust me, if Russia was still weak, if Boris Yeltsin was the president, the United States would have said, because look what the Bush administration did in 2002. We don't need arms control. We don't need no stinking arms control. What, you want one of these treaties with the big protocol and the inspection? We don't need inspections. All we want is a 500-word, three-paragraphs thing that says, yeah, we're going to get rid of weapons. Uh, uh, And we're not even worried about you. Inspections, we don't care because you can't do anything. You're Russia, you're weak. We're America, we're strong. We're going to, you know, oh, that was the whole approach. And it was arrogant. And what did Putin do? He signed the damn thing. Why? He had no choice because Russia was weak. Russia wasn't ready to play the big boy game. 2009 comes rolling around and America's going, hey, um, that, that start one treaty thing, it's, it's going to expire. And that sort of thing's a joke. We, we sort of like a new treaty. And the Russians are going, well, yeah, we, we won't win too. But we have a condition. That ABM treaty that your big boy Bush got out of, we need it back. We don't like your missiles. You've lied to us about missiles. It's real. It's a threat to us. We need to link the two. And Obama went, nah, uh, I, can't, I can't get that through the Senate. I can only get strategic reduction through the Senate. But then we'll work with the, give me time. I can make missile defense work for you. Promise me. I trust you. I mean, you trust me. I promise this will happen. And the Russians went, okay, we, we trust you. And so they went through with New START, fundamental mistake. Anatoly Antonov, the negotiator, admits today, bad treaty, bad treaty. Russia shouldn't have done it. But they believed the United States. They believed Obama. Why, why was it a bad, Scott, why was it a bad treaty? Because the United States has cheated fundamentally on it. Um, two things happen here. The idea is to artificially, you, you, get the, you get the notion that we're reducing arsenals to 1,500, 1,550 warheads. But that's operationally deployed warheads. Then you have a bunch of warheads that aren't the operation deployed. They're in reserve status. They're linked to launchers, but launchers are either 
uh, you know, dedicated part of the cap of, uh, I think it's 800. Um, you can 800 launchers or 700, one of those numbers, there's two numbers to play here. But what the United States has done in order to get our number down, we have B-52 bombers, B-52H bombers that are nuclear capable. We got to get rid of some of them. And so, you know, the idea in the past, when you decommissioned a bomber, you took it out to Davis Monthan, and some dude, big arms and a chainsaw cuts it up. And then they lay out the pieces, they take a photograph and go decommissioned. Yeah. Well, America did. We came in and went, yeah, you see, um, we got this box here that gives us the ability to, you know, do the, 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 the dynamics for the, the delivery of the munition. And a wire comes down here to here. So we're going to cut the wires. It's been decommissioned. And the Russians are going, what happens when you reconnect the wires? Well, we're not. We decommissioned it. But that's not really decommissioned. Ah, and here's why it's a bad treaty. We didn't specify how it had to be done. We just talked about the end result. And the Russians go, but this sucks. Then you go to the Ohio-class submarine with its Trident launch tube. The Russians are like, you're decommissioning that for your numbers, but all you did is take a box out. And you had a guy testify for Congress that if the Russians violate the treaty, we can bring these tubes back up into, so they're not really decommissioned, they're sort of paused. Uh, so you're lying to us again. The Americans are like, no, no, no. The treaty doesn't specify all this. You should you should have thought about that during negotiations. Uh, you know, and, and Anatol's going, well, yeah, but we were agreeing on terms like decommissioning. We had a definition. Yes, but the definition isn't carved in stone. We lied. America lied and the Russians realized it because now what we have is we're getting the Russians down to 1,550 and we're at 1,550, but the, the game changes as the Senate has required us to do. We have to rapidly expand back up. So we have nuclear supremacy if and when called upon to do it. And that is not the purpose of arms control. That's the purpose of armed control, the American version, where we control your arms. But arms control is supposed to be mutually beneficial and reciprocal. And the New START Treaty is not that. But the Russians bought it. Scott, so what is the, I mean, if this, these are the machinations and you're an arms control expert, so I'm going to take it obviously on face value of what you're saying. So what is the future of arms control? Or maybe there isn't one. No, there is. The Russians, I mean, again, I always get teary-eyed sometimes because I just, I, I listen to Putin, I listen to the Russians. I'm like, why are you guys so reasonable? What the hell's wrong with you, man? Why couldn't you just be like me, a, a, a you know, a bitter, angry person who lashes out at everything when you've been screwed. And, and I'll say, you have every right to lash out. The Russians are like, yeah, treaty sucks. We're not going to do it. But we're, we want to get back on this path. But here's what the Russians say. Because the other thing about New START, which has been with everyone in strategic treaties, the Russians are always going, oh, that American arsenal thing's pretty cool. But what about the French and the British? Oh, no, 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 no. That's NATO. That's not. We only talk about America. Really? Those are American submarines, American missiles, American nuclear weapons on the British submarines. Why don't we call them American? Oh, no. But they're part of your integrated um, uh, nuclear war plan. Yes, but no, they're British. The French, they're totally independent. That's probably true, but still, they're NATO. Um, but, but that's the Soviet Union. I mean, the Soviet Union agreed to this back when they started all these um, correct. strategic arms limitation talks that, oh, the British and the French, you know, we don't count them. I mean, I, you know, the Soviets were quite were too reasonable and just simply agreed Well, but the Soviets this. were also worried about getting, because remember at that time, the French and British numbers were very small. Right. So from a strategic standpoint, the Soviets want to get that American number of 30,000 down to a manageable number before you start talking about this. Other. But now that the American numbers come down, suddenly the British and French arsenals are significant. 
They, they become a very significant player here. And the Russians are going, we're, so what's interesting here is the Russians basically said, yeah, we'll do arms control. I mean, it's going to be a new treaty. So all that crap you pulled on us with New START, it ain't going to happen again. Plus, um, yeah, France and England are on the table now. It's non-negotiable. And what's going to happen here is the United States is going to have to, the Russians are smart. They've, they've left the door open, but there's no longer negotiation about the French. And, the, and so America is going to have to go to the British. You're going to go after the Say we got it, it, it. It's all one now. We got to talk about a NATO nuclear structure, which includes the B sixty one. Now Russia is going to have to fold in their tactical nukes, uh, which Russia has been avoiding doing. You know, but Russia's. I believe they're ready to do that. Trust me. If Russia, if if Russia says, "What you want us to put the tactical nukes on the table, but we get the British, the French, and the B sixty ones, we're in. We're in." Because now we have comprehensive arms control, which is what the Russians have been looking for for a long time. But then there's the other thing that's going to have to factor in, which America doesn't realize, is ballistic missile defense, because America has lied from day one. I mean, I love the big lie uh, in 2012. It's just an SM3, guys. Just an SM3. It shoots down airplanes. It doesn't shoot down missiles. And any missile it shoots down, it's an Iranian missile. Just an SM3, except three years later, it's an SM3-2A, which shoots down ICBMs. And the Russians are going, what the hell just happened? You lied to us again. Larry Johnson told George and I, which is, is something I didn't, I wasn't aware of, after uh, Bush Jr. walked away from uh, the ABM treaty, that, that the Russians took the cue and said, okay, we're going to build some. And they have anti-missile defense systems um, that were, were not uh, allowed under the treaty. Do you, how, what do you know about that? Because you know, I, I I hadn't thought that they would say, okay, well, we have no treaty. We're going to start developing anti-missile defense. My understanding is just the exact opposite. It, it doesn't mean that Larry's okay. wrong. Okay. But my understanding is that the Russians, just like with the INF treaty, you know, when the INF treaty ended, Russia didn't go out there and start building intermediate. New, for instance, they have the caliber uh, cruise missile. It's a sea launch cruise missile, an air-delivered cruise missile. Be a hell of a system to have on the ground. Great operational flexibility. But Russia's not using it from the ground. Why? Because Russia's not getting ahead of the game. Russia knows that the strategic objective is to return to arms control. And so they're not going to invest a lot of money into a system that would have to be destroyed under a renewed INF treaty. Right. The same thing with the ABM. Well, Russia still has their, their, their system outside of Moscow. And that system's there, and they've done some upgrades on that missile. But that is still a treaty-compliant system if the ABM treaty were able to come back in. Because Russia's goal isn't to walk away from arms control, but to come back and make arms control function. Right. Right. I don't know, Scott, I don't know whether you saw yesterday Robert O'Brien, who is um, <clears throat> Trump's national oh, security I, advisor. I saw that. He was on Laura Ingram, and, and he said, well, you know, the, the, the thing about arms control agreements is that the Russians cheat on all of them. So that was then. But then he said, oh, well, they were cheating on the INF treaty. And the missiles that they are using now against Ukraine are all the missiles that they had built in violation of the INF treaty, which I thought was a bit illogical because the INF treaty was, was history in 2019, which is three years ago. Um, but, you know, they said, oh, this, they, they just built all this in violation of the INF treaty. But that just proves my, my point about how stupid America is. You know, when, when the United States was talking about the violation, um, you know, eventually some, some information came out about what they were worried about and about the specific um, Russian um, uh, defense industry institution that, was, that there was the focus of their attention. It was the one that produced the caliber missile. Um, and it also was involved in the development of an expansion of the Iskander 
uh, missile, not not the big one, but the little thin cruise missile one. Um, and what they did with the Iskander one is they 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 put on a new guidance system uh, to deliver a, a new warhead, but the propulsion system stayed the same. Now I'm just a simple marine, but I've been around missiles long enough, inspecting them in INF and Iraq and elsewhere, um, to know that if the propulsion system's the same, and you put on more weight in the guidance system and a bigger warhead, the missile won't fly as far. So if the caliber with its propulsion system, or the, uh, the, the I'm sorry, not the caliber, the um, Skander is compliant, meaning it's a short-range missile, and I'm using the same propulsion system with a heavier package, it's going to be a compliant system too. But, but in the, what happened is in the tests that were done, the Russians were testing, uh, you can test flight Sea launch crew missile from a designated ground system as long as it's designated, et cetera. It's not as designed to operate from that. So the Russians had tested some calibers from this system at the same time they were testing the other system, and our intelligence guys got it wrong. I know because I'm an intelligence guy and I know exactly what they went through. I don't know that they got it wrong, but I, I've studied that problem before. And I'm telling you, I know what they were looking at, I know what they were seeing, and I realized where the screw up was. And they wrote a report and I traced the report back. It's classified, but I know the report exists and I know who it went to and I know what it said. And it had great ambiguity about it. And then the right, the conservative idiots in the arms control took that and jumped on it to use it as a negotiating ploy against the Russians. And the Russians were like, we didn't cheat. And they didn't cheat. If they had cheat, first of all, O'Brien's an idiot. What missiles, Brian? O'Brien, I, the Russians, you know, the thing about war, you dumb fool, is when you fire a missile, you leave debris on the ground. And I'm one of the experts that goes around and picks up little pieces of missiles and takes them back to warehouses and reassembles them and looks at them very like this for a long time to figure out what they are. If you don't think every missile Russia is using this conflict isn't sitting in a warehouse outside of Sweetland, Maryland, someplace where CIA and DIA and other people are looking at it, figuring it out, you don't know anything about how all this works. OK, we got trucks going into Ukraine. Those trucks are full of people like me who are wearing civilian clothes, who go to every place of missile impacts and they pick up the debris and they take it back and it's reassembled. And so we see what the Russians have. That's what, all right. I'm not giving away national secrets. This is what happens. So if the Russians use a treaty non-compliant AMF missile, we know it. They're not. Everything they're using. Again, I come back to the way the, the Russian approaches. And I, I, I can say this has been confirmed to me by by senior Russian authorities. The Russians operate as if every treaty the United States has pulled back on is going to be back in place sometime in the future. And Russia's not in the business of spending billions of dollars to develop a weapon system just to give it away when they don't need it. Russia's not building new Well, the, the interesting thing is, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this, but it was what I learned is that it was the Americans that taught the Russians how arms control works because the Russian, the Soviets were very, very skeptical. And that may be true, but it's really, if it is true, it's very interesting is that now it's the Russians trying to convince the Americans the value of arms control, because we've seen ever since the end of the Cold War, really a highly dismissive attitude towards arms control. And it's been coming from the West. I mean, obviously, the <clears throat> at the epicenter of that is John Bolton. I mean, he 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 never saw an arms control treaty that he liked. But it's not just John Bolton. We... You know, it's like anything. When you when you have a muscle and you don't use it, it atrophies. It goes away. Okay, we used to have some very strong arms control muscle. I mean, we had a guy named Paul Nietzsche, who uh, yeah. you know was World War II kind of guy, original Cold Warrior, uh, yeah. and he was the 
the negotiator of the INF Treaty. You don't get any more old school than Paul Nietzsche. Yeah. And uh, he's not a friend of the Soviet Union. Um, but he was a, he recognized the importance of arms control. We had a whole crew of people that Paul Nietzsche trained and raised up that got, gave us the INF Treaty and gave us the initial START Treaty. Uh, it started the negotiations on START II. Uh, and some of them were left for on. I mean, Rose Goldmuller, um, you know, she she's sort of the tail end of that. She's the last, the last of them. She wasn't that good, but she was the last of them. Um, she's she's very political. I interviewed her once. Uh, she's, yeah, she's very she's, ideological. I, I can't I can't say that she's not informed. She knows she knows arms control. Uh, I, I and I respect her, her her credentials on that. She, but. She didn't understand that arms control isn't about politics. Arms control is about national security. And she allowed arms control to become politicized. She's the person to blame for New Start and lying to Anatoly Antonov. She claims that she has a friendly relation with Antonov. I can't say it, but I, I would imagine Antonov is very bitter about her because she lied to him. Um, you know, she's just a straight up liar. And that's not a good arms controller. If you don't, if you sit at that table and the other side doesn't trust you, it's gone. Trust, but verify. You got to trust first before you can verify and the Russians right now, who who do they have? Nobody. We don't have any arms control people, any real arms control people. The State Department people today admit they're no longer in control of the process. The Pentagon's in 100% control of the process. And you can't have the people who build the weapons, deploy the weapons, are ready to use the weapons responsible for limiting the weapons. That doesn't work. But the Russians have done the same thing because we haven't exercised our arms control muscle. Their nonproliferation group in their Ministry of Foreign Affairs has gone away. Um, it's now the Russian military. Scott, arms control can only go together with detente. I mean, it's like, you know, you have to have improved relations first, and then you have arms control. You can't really have arms control without having good relations. I mean, if you have terrible relations, and I think Putin was suggesting that, I mean, if relations now are so terrible, you yeah. really can't have arms control because, you know, you basically your enemies, you don't trust one another, and therefore you're not going to trust any kind of uh, agreement that you would come to. The 1970s the and 80s were time of detente. I mean, that was all, starting from the 1960s. It was the improvement of relations. And out of that came the SALT agreements and then the START agreements. But once relations collapsed, um, you know, started collapsing 10, 15 years ago, that bang, boom, there goes arms control. Well, we can't have arms control if you have um, uh, Americans giving Ukrainians logistical yeah. and intelligence help exactly. using yeah. American oh, that, well, that's, to that's, attack, that's, to attack that's, Russian that's, soil. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, this, this, the, I mean, if we, and again, if the Russians listen to them. They've given us the answer. <laughs> we will have arms control when Ukraine stops being a problem. Yeah. And so there, there uh, all this talk about arms control is theoretical. There will be no. Russian-American arms control um, talks until the Ukrainian conflict is finished and the West accepts the outcome. Um, mm -hmm. That's just a statement of fact. Uh, and it's not me saying that. The Russians, Putin just said it. Every Russian person has said it. And the Russians and, and, are and in the, the business. Will, and the West will believe it. Be, I mean, they may spin it their own peculiar way. We can all expect that. But they will accept it out of self-interest, you're saying? I believe so because they have no choice because NATO... Um, Look, NATO is going to is again. I I, I got to watch what I say, not because it's dirty language, but I don't want to insult anybody. But um, so for anybody who's not Christian out there, um, I don't mean to insult you, but NATO is going to have a come to Jesus moment, um, yeah, very soon, um, and and it's just going to be because what happens when your 
you know, I, I'd love to be a fly on the wall this summer uh, in, in the Baltics when they have the NATO summit. Um, you know, and Zelensky thinks he's going to come waltzing in and be treated like a hero. Dude, your country's going to be gone by then. I mean, whatever's left is going to be burning. Your troops are going to be dead. And NATO's going to be in a panic because somebody said that they want to hold the Russians to account. They wanted NATO tanks on. Uh, this ends when Ukrainian tanks are in the Kremlin. You're right. They are good. It, it is going to end with Ukrainian tanks in the Kremlin. It's going to be trophy tanks lined up so everybody can walk by and, 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 and cheer as uh, Ukrainian banners from Azov are marched in and dumped on the ground like the Nazi banners. And maybe Ukrainian prisoners of war get marched by, too, to a cheering crowd kissing them as the great victory, because that's the future of Ukraine. And NATO's going to sit there and go, what do we do now? What, what have we done? What have we done? At that point in time, um, hopefully more rational minds will come in and say, we've got to go into damage control. So we're going to initiate um, European security framework discussions with Russia. And the, the, the seed's already been sown. You hear Macron and Schultz and everybody talking about that. On the one hand, you know, we're going to give them tanks. We're going to give them an airplane. We're going to give them this. But when it's over, we certainly need to talk. And um, we have to keep that open. They know it's over. Again, they're not stupid. I'm telling you right now, one of the reasons why I've been so confident in Russian victory is that in September, I did the math. And I looked at after the Ukrainians blew their reserves, I went, it's over. Because they can't replenish and Russia is in the business of expanding. And so all Russia has to do is keep in the grinding business. They can't replenish. Russia's expanding. And we get to the old-fashioned Game of Thrones moment. Final season. The Lannister infantry sitting there shaking. And here come the Dothraki with the dragon coming in. They're going to get swamped. That's what's happening right now. This is, or we can use the wildfire thing. Go to any wildfire movie where the whole country's on fire, flame coming, the hotshot crew is sitting there going, we're screwed. And they get in their little tinfoil thing and they burn over and they're all dead. That's where the Ukrainians are right now. That, I don't mean to gloat about it. That's just a reality. It's there. And so, you know, Europe's going to wake up pretty soon and go, um, we lost. And, and Scott, and yeah, Scott I would like to add, I would like to add, because it's something I don't want to let go, um, like <laughs> a bone uh, that my dogs will not let go, is that I agree with uh, overall with your assessment. And once it's all said and done and over, the North Stream pipeline has still been destroyed. So at the end of the day, what did they get? OK, they got a lot of deficit. OK, also, yeah. Um, do you think just well, they, you when like, you say what, they get what do you mean who what they got did what did the well, what europe got for their support of biden's war yeah okay yeah. what did they get out of it okay it's really interesting is that um unfortunately the world is um uh goes through this torturous experience called the american presidential election cycle um this is biden's war i mean i was i'm truly astounded how much he wants to own this it's not a it's not a winning horse um but he he's it's him it's his war he wants to go down in history as this and, and i think as we pointed out the republicans have an absolute opening here precisely to say no. this is biden's war and you know that if it were trump who was president the democrats would be saying this is trump's war this is trump's war and they would be going after Trump in the day and night, blaming him for this uh, war. The Republicans, you know, they have Mitch McConnell, who just said, this is the most important thing in the world right now. You know, this is, you know, the, the number one issue. 
So, you know, there's an opening there, which unfortunately Republicans haven't uh, seized on. Well, but the Republicans are, are covered in as much Ukrainian blood as the Democrats are on this one. They've been right. voting for every single one of these packages. Um, and politically, again, you know, that, there, there's that old saying that, that I learned from a general who told me, Ritter, when you're explaining, you're losing. Because I'm standing in front of the general telling him why I'm right. He's saying, you're a lieutenant. I'm a general. My time's precious. I don't have time for you. Leave. Um, politicians don't like to explain anything to their electorate. They like things to be so simple, dumbed down, that the electorate assumes things. And right now, we have the American electorate fundamentally bought into the notion that Ukraine is good, Russia is bad. We know it's wrong, but that's what they believe. And so, therefore, it's a very easy sell simply for McConnell to say, this is the most important thing in the world today because I've told you, Ukraine's good. Y'all got the flag up there on your house? Good job. Good Way to virtue signal there, Erica. Uh, social media, flag, flag, flag. Good job, guys. Ritter, where's your flag? You're a bad man. Um, you know, and, 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 and all that. But the last thing they want to do is say, we were wrong. We made a mistake. Oops. Um, and, and that moment's going to come. And when it comes, I think Biden feels safe because he has political cover, because both parties are going to sink on this one. Um, here's the thing, you know, We've always talked, everybody talks about this is the year for the independent candidate. This is the year for the independent candidate. But it's never worked because there's always been one candidate or the other who's been viable. Um, if Trump becomes the, uh, the, 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 the Republican candidate and Biden is the Democratic candidate, neither one of them is viable. They both suck. They're both horrible. Uh, Trump will never get more than 30% of the Republican vote. The rest of the Republican Party despises this man, reviles this man. Biden is just an idiot, a bumbling fool. Even the Democrats are running away. But the problem is, are the Democrats going to leave Biden to go to Trump? The answer is no. Are the Republicans going to leave Trump to go to Biden? The answer is no. So you got this huge mass in the middle right now. And if America could just generate a viable independent candidate, this could be the year where we made history in 2024, where we actually elected somebody who's not held prisoner by the system. Well, you know, you know, Scott, from a previous gaggle we've had with you, and I don't want to go into the weeds with it, and but I know it'll tickle your fancies. We still have Tulsi Gabbard out there. Okay. <laughs> hey, look, Tulsi, Tulsi is somebody I have a lot of respect for, but I think even Tulsi will, will acknowledge that she's probably not that person. Um, Tulsi, Tulsi could be an asset to that person. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 and I can't put a name to this person. I'm just saying that the opportunities there. I don't know if America has that person. That's the sad part. I think America okay. has become so divided that even though this opportunity is there screaming for an independent candidate, I don't know if we have one. One last thing that would happen over the weekend here. Uh, there was this anti-war uh, rally. Um, and Jimmy Dore, someone I've been on his program twice, someone I really respect, and he's a man from the left. He was quite explicit without naming names, and I'm not asking you to name names, but he made it very clear during his presentation that there was an exclusionary list. It was very narrow who was allowed to participate. Do you want to comment on that at all? I wasn't allowed to participate. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I was invited twice, but in the end, uh, they were going to, um, uh, the Libertarian Party basically said that um, if I speak, they'll pull the permit. And if they and, and if they pulled the permit, then the, the whole rally would have collapsed. And then everybody who worked so hard to get people up on that stage um, would have blamed me. Why, 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 why was the, what was the reason? What, why, why would they pull the permit? 
Oh, a twofold. One, uh, I, I have a, I have a, a conviction record they find to be repulsive, and two, I'm not anti-war enough. I see. I mean, even though I'm, I, I oppose the Iraq war and I've opposed unjust wars. Apparently, my stance on the the Ukraine-Russian conflict uh, taints me as a pro-war uh, person. So. I wouldn't be allowed to speak about what I was going to speak about, which is arms. Well, the reason why I brought it up and I didn't want to bring it personal to you is that, okay. that this is one of the things that I find so terribly disappointing when I think of someone like Jimmy Dore, I think of someone like Tucker Carlson, both from opposite ends of the uh, uh, spectrum, but are going out of their way, out of their way to at least come to terms on uh, one of the most important issues of our lifetime, war and peace, okay? And I, I find it very, very disappointing. Right. And, and what's interesting, that, you following up on that, is that you have somebody like Michael Tracy, you know, who's not a, who's not a bad person, attacking this, attacking this uh, rally because he's saying, well, they're a pro-war. This is a pro-war uh, rally because they're pro-Russia. And then you had people on the left who were, who were, who were kind of gloating. Oh, look at how few people showed up i mean why why are they gloating about this i mean you know aren't you against this war i mean but sir, well, oh, what, oh, oh, how few people showed up what, what, what kills me is on um march 18th i think um the left is going to hold a uh, rally outside of the white house marking the uh 10th anniversary or the 20th anniversary i've got times flown of the u.s invasion of iraq um and and they're just gloating how they're going to have six thousand seven thousand demonstrators and they and and, and they say that's that's better than what this anti-war group did and nothing. And I'm like, but that's all you're ever going to get. You see, this was the first step for this anti-war coalition. It was a, it was a stumble, but they moved forward. And yeah, maybe they had two thousand people. Maybe they had three thousand people. Maybe they had fifteen hundred people. I don't care. And what is they had some people, and they brought together people who talked about a very important issue, and you know. So they went from zero to 1,500. The left is going from 6,000 to 6,000. The left has reached a peak. That's all they're going to get. Um, this thing, if they can survive the internal fighting and they get their act together. You know, the interesting thing about the first time you do something is mistakes are made. And then you, a good organization looks at the mistakes and say, okay, we won't do that again. Boom. So who knows? The next time, maybe they have 20,000. Well, that's 14,000 more than the left got on uh, March 18th. Then the next time, they have 100,000. And that's like 94,000 more than what the left got. Then the next time, they got a million. And uh, that's the direction. See, I, I'm, I'm in favor of this coalition of the singularly minded because it wasn't a pro-Russia. It wasn't an anti-Russia. It was an anti-war thing. Um, but the thing about anti-war is, is you don't have to be a pacifist to be up there. I'm not a pacifist. Um if you threaten me or my country, I will kill you. I could have killed you more efficiently 20 years ago, but I'll still try. Um, it's like climbing Mount Everest. I have great ambitions, <laughs> but the, the ability Well, you know, to they, they, you, I th I'm sure you noticed that uh, Rokana, he was part of this um, failed uh, letter to uh, the administration about, you know, basically tempering expectations and maybe more of an explanation. He was in Taiwan. So, um, you know, visiting Taiwan. I mean, this this shows these people are not very serious at all. Okay, no. they are very establishment people. So, all right. Well, Scott, this is a really once again uh, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for giving us your time. We learned a great deal. I'm sure all gagglers will be delighted by it. So, thank you, and we'll see you again soon. So, okay. all the best. Thanks.
Bye bye.